Well, primetime is back in the headlines. Do you know who primetime is? Deion Sanders, he's back in the headlines. He became the most famous college football coach in the country just by showing up, just by being there. I don't know if you saw what happened, but he's got two sons that play college football, and they started playing at the University of Colorado this year, and dad came along and followed, or maybe he led, depending on how you look at it. But primetime shows up, and all of a sudden, the University of Colorado has a pretty good football team. All of a sudden, last year, they were 1-11. This year, they won their first three games. Now, they lost to Oregon and USC and Stanford and UCLA. So they lost to, you know, our West Coast teams. But they did a pretty good job up until that point. And one thing you can't deny about Deion Sanders is if he comes to town, there's going to be a lot of eyeballs that are focused on whatever he's doing in that area. Whether you love him or hate him, the person who could play in the NFL and the MLB at the same time, who could play for the Falcons in the morning and the Braves in the afternoon, you know that that person is going to bring some level of impact and some level of influence to whatever area he's in. Seems like the whole college football world is focused on this one little school that last year only won one single game because you had a very influential person who made a big impact in that area want you to think we all have a measure of impact and influence that we have in the world in which God has put us. Now, he's got a big stage, Deion Sanders. He's got a big level of influence with a lot of people, but I want you to think about the world in which God has placed you. I want you to think about the family in which God has placed you and the workplace in which God has placed you, in the social groups in which God has placed you. And I want us to think about the question, what kind of an impact am I making in the world that God has put me in. Now, that's a pretty big question. That's a defining question for what it means to be a disciple because this strikes at the heart of what Jesus calls his disciples to be. So I know this is a very simple question, an overarching question, but I want us to find the answer in one of the most important sermons in all of the Bible in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've got a Bible, please open it up to Matthew chapter 5, and let's look at this together, where Jesus is going to define what kind of impact am I supposed to make as a disciple? What kind of impact are you supposed to make as one of his disciples? He says it right here in Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you know Matthew 5, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you're a scholar, you know it as the first lecture or the first sermon that's presented in the Gospel of Matthew. There's five of them. This is the first one. And it's all about the kingdom of God and how to live like a person who's going to the kingdom of God. In fact, it defines the ethics for the people of God in many very succinct ways. So this is a very important text. You probably already know that. He starts by talking to the crowds and the disciples. You got all these people are in front of him. He sits down and he opens up by giving these beatitude statements. You might know those as the the paradoxical or upside down or backwards blessing statements of God, right? Like none of these seem to make sense on the surface where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed means happy. So he's saying, happy are the people who are broken and sad and contrite. And how does that make sense? Well, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's going to go on and do this a bunch of different times. And then in verse 11, he's going to say, instead of giving a general statement, which he's been giving all these statements, which they reflect the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, like Psalm 1-1, you should be hearing that in your head as you read these things. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, right? We kind of hear that in our heads as we read this, but he gets to verse 11 and he turns their attention to them. He says, blessed are you. Before he was giving general statements. Now he's talking to them individually. Who's he talking to? I think he's talking to disciples of him. Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I thought this was about what kind of impact we were supposed to be making. Well, you know, if you're making the right kind of impact for Jesus Christ in the world, you're probably going to face this on your first day of trying to make an impact, a little bit of opposition. He says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I read all that to set up for us. What is our main text this morning to define what is it going to look like for us to be disciples? What's our role? What's our purpose? Well, he answers it with two images and one command. So let's look at this in verse 13. Image number one, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Containing that little phrase, you got a lot of different things. Who's you? All right, let's answer this question. Who's the you that we're talking about here? Well, I think it's the same you that we're talking about in verse 11. Right? I think we're talking about disciples of Christ. You. So he's saying you are a disciple of Christ, okay? Well, then you are the or the or whatever, however you want to pronounce it, the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you are salt of the earth. There's a way to do that grammatically. He does not do that grammatically. He says you are the salt of the earth. He used a definite article to say that you are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? As opposed to being salt of the earth. Well, if he said you are salt of the earth, he could say, hey, you and a lot of other things in the world do whatever salt does. But he doesn't say that. He says you are the salt of the earth. There is not another salt of the earth. Whatever you are as a disciple is not going to be done by people who are not my disciples. So then it gets to the hardest word, salt, right? What does that mean? You're salt of the earth. Now, we use salt for a lot of different things. The ancient world used salt for even more things. Uh, one scholar says there are 11 different things that Jesus could have meant by salt, and every interpreter has to choose one of them. It's like, well, that's, that's really easy for us as interpreters, 11 different things. There are 11 different things salt can mean, right? If you ever study this passage, you know the difficulty of coming to a conclusion. I think most people come to this conclusion, which is, I think, the, the correct one. Salt in the ancient world was used to do two things primarily, preserve and purify. So salt, if you're going to put it on you know, beef jerky, we still do this sometimes today, you can salt a piece of meat and it can preserve it for a long period of time where if you don't do that, you know, it could go bad. This is how they preserve food. But another thing, especially in the Old Testament we see, is that salt is used in purity rituals in the Old Testament. You're supposed to salt your sacrifice. So you know, does that make it taste better for God? Like, no, it doesn't care how it tastes. That's not the point. But salt was symbolic for purity, right? And even, you know, my wife this week was cleaning her cast iron pots with salt this week. So we still do things to clean with salt. So in the ancient world, salt did two things, preserve and purify. Okay, if that's the correct interpretation, let's read this again. You, disciples of Christ, are the preservers, the purifiers of our earth, of our world. You're supposed to do something in a world that's going to go corrupt. You should be in it, preserving it. And if you're not doing it, nobody's going to do it. That's what the definite article means when he says you are the salt of the earth. There's a lot contained in that little phrase. He goes on and he says, well, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Literally, the phrase lost its taste is not what it actually says. What it actually says is, to become moronic or stupid, right? So how do you translate a phrase when your salt becomes moronic, right? Well, you can't really translate that because salt doesn't become moronic. So the translator's like, well, the best way we can say this is salt has lost its taste or it's, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. For salt to lose its taste, I think what we're 
pointing at in the ancient world is if you had salt that was meant to purify or preserve something, if it was spoiled in some way, if it got dirty, if it was dumped on the ground, if it was you know, spoiled anyway, sometimes in the ancient world, water would mess up the salt and you had to you know, try to evaporate the water, but it was really hard to do back then. And there were ways that salt could be spoiled. I think his point here is, if salt is no longer good for preserving or purifying, listen to what he says next, how shall its saltiness be restored? How can you get it back? If you as a disciple of Christ, if your role is to be a preserver from corruption and a purifier in the world that God has placed you, if you lose the characteristic of preserving and purifying, how do you get it back? Once you've blown it, once your reputation is tarnished, how do you get it back? It's really hard. This is a threat. Like right when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, the first thing he warns us is be careful because salt can become ineffective, going against its own nature, against its own purpose here. He says, if it loses its taste, how shall it be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, most people don't read that as the statement of judgment that it is. Remember, who's the salt of the earth? Right? You are the salt of the earth. Who's you? Disciples. Okay? Disciples who lose their saltiness. Look at the phrase that Jesus says that's potentially true for us. Salt loses its taste. It's no longer good for anything. We cannot be used for the purposes in which God has for us. To use our first word, we cannot make the impact that God wants us to make if we lose that thing about us that's supposed to be preserving or purifying. I mean, notice the phrase, you are the salt of the earth. It's a statement of being. It's not a statement of function. He's not saying you should become salt of the earth. He's just saying that's what a disciple is. A disciple is a purifier. A discipler or a person who is a disciple of Christ, they are a preserver of God's world here. But if we lose that quality, it's hard to get it back. Verse 14, he gives another analogy. It, it brings to a similar point, but it says, you are the light of the world. Right? So you, same thing, disciples, the definite article. So we're talking about we're the people that are supposed to do this. If we don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. He says, you're the light of the world. That's even harder to interpret. Now, there could probably be even more than 11 things that light could mean, but if you know your Bible, you know that light is used in a lot of different ways. Right? What does this mean to be the light of the world? Well, I think we see some clues as we keep reading. Verse 15, he says, or, or the second phrase of verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Literally, it is not able to be hidden. It's not a statement of what should or should not happen. This is just a statement of fact. A city on a hill is not able to be hidden. But look at the next example he gives. You could hide your light. Verse 15 says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it may give light to all that are in the house. So that time he says, well, I guess it's possible for you to cover up a light, but that would be a big waste of your electricity bill to turn all your lights on in your house and to cover them all up, right? Uh, I'm the one in my family now uh, who's saying, hey, turn the lights off, turn the lights off. I understand what my parents are trying to get at because these electricity bills are crazy, especially in the summertime. You gotta, you know, make sure it's not during peak hours and all this different stuff. And like our air conditioner went out this summer for a little bit and it was a really good month for our electricity bill because <laughs> air conditioner wasn't working, can't turn it on. Sorry, sorry, wife, sorry, kids. We gotta do fans or whatever. Anyway, uh, what am I saying? My point is, it's a big waste to turn your lights on and to cover them. 
it's a big waste, bigger waste probably if we're looking at you know, economics, probably a bigger waste in the ancient world to waste the candles, to waste the oil or whatever they use to burn, even bigger waste of their money to burn it and cover it. Jesus is trying to say, what a waste for a Christian who is light in the world to be covered up, to be completely private, to have nobody interact with them, no, no darkness to interact with the light. What a waste that would be. In one sense, it's even impossible as a city, but it's certainly possible for us to cover up the light that we're supposed to have, the impact we're supposed to make. He ends in verse 16. This is the command, the only command in the text. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. That's the single command, shine. Shine before others. Before others. So what does that mean? You're supposed to live in such a way that others see what you're doing. There's an assumption that you're in the earth, in the world, and being seen by others. That's assumed in the text. But he says here, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So even that phrase, they may see your good works, that's a pretty good clue for us as to what light in the world means. To do something that Jesus does that will be seen by others. These are two images, one command that should define for us what does it look like to be a disciple of Christ? You could summarize it in one phrase. It's on the front of your uh, bulletin. It's that our job is to change the world. Right? Now, that seems like a pretty daunting thing, right? That would change the world, right? That sounds very idealistic. That, I don't know if that's possible. I don't know. If, is that really what God wants us to do? Well, in this text, as Jesus is defining what disciples do and how they function in the world and what they are in the world, that is exactly what salt and light do. They change the world. Now, you might not have the platform to change the world like Deion Sanders. You might not have the platform like that, but we all have a small platform in our small little corner of the world, wherever God has put us, to make an impact and to change that little section of the world for good. It's a daunting task, but it's what Jesus calls his disciples to do. And these images of salt and light, you got to understand, they come with a couple of assumptions that Jesus makes about the world that we have to share. One of them is that the world is corrupt and needs to be preserved like salt. The other thing is that it's dark and it needs to be illuminated by light. And then really those are one and the same. It's the same idea that the world is sinful. We got to share that assumption that Jesus has here. The other assumption is that we would interact with the world, which is not an assumption that every Christian today shares, that we should interact with the world, that we should maybe know some people that are not followers of Christ, that we should be interacting like salt, I mean, salt in a salt shaker is great, but it hasn't been used yet, right? When does salt become useful? It's when it leaves the shaker. When does light become useful? Well, when it shines through the darkness. So that's another assumption that Jesus has in this text that we need to see before we write down any points, that the world is sinful and corrupt, and that Jesus expects us to be interacting with that outside world. Some key assumptions that Jesus has for us. Well, let's understand these things one by one. The first thing about salt. It's just interesting that as Jesus says this, he gives a warning for us. And I think it's a warning we need to hear. Point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. Be careful not to sin away your influence. Be careful not to sin away your influence. That's what he's getting at with this salt metaphor. At least that's what he goes at after he explains what salt is. Be careful because it's possible for you to lose your saltiness. It's possible for you as a disciple of Christ to have a certain impact and to make that impact and then to have that impact 
changed or hurt, corrupted, whatever word you want to use, because of our own sin. My daughter is now at the age where she's standing on everything she can, jumping off of everything that she can, grabbing everything that she can, playing with everything that she can, and twisting everything that she can. I walked into her room yesterday, and she had a purple pen. And I don't know how she got that, but she did. She found a way, and she was coloring in all of her books. Right? Not coloring books, but just all the books on her shelf. Now I'll have purple all over them. And she said, hey, purple. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Uh, we got to put that away. It's not a good idea. One of the other things that Eden has figured out is how our salt and pepper shakers work on the middle of our table. It's very fun because it's this thing that if you twist the top of it and you turn it a certain way, guess what? All this stuff comes out of it. It's so cool. I just imagine her thinking that way until we're like, no, don't touch it. Don't touch it. No, stop, stop. Like, get off the table, Eden. Like, sorry. She gets on the table sometimes. We really want her to sit down, but um, don't, yeah. I know that I shouldn't let my, yeah. She doesn't stand on the table that often, but at the time I'm imagining, she did. She went from floor to chair to table to salt and pepper shaker while we weren't looking to she's holding it and just, you know, grinding it and figuring out how all that stuff comes down. It's like, that's really impressive. You're so smart. Please stop doing that, right? Because the moment the salt is on the ground, I, we're done with it, right? When the pepper, when she shakes it over, you know, her brother's head or whatever she does, she's all excited, no longer useful for anything, right? I mean, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. You may not be, but you're not using that salt anymore, right? You're not that frugal that you're going to sweep it up on, in the dustpan and then put it back in. You're not going to do that, right? It's spoiled for you correct? It's corrupt. It's not useful. That's the image that Jesus is giving. He's saying, okay, if we're salt and we're supposed to preserve and we're supposed to purify, if we are not that, if we don't act like what we are supposed to be, then we lose the potential impact that we can make. And all of us, no matter how mature you are, no matter how knowledgeable you are, we have to have the mindset of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Where Paul tells those Christians, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. There's a certain humility that we should have. Even in Galatians 6, when he says, okay, the the most spiritual and mature people in the church, you guys need to be be the ones to help those who are suffering and the ones who are sinning. You should be there to restore them, but don't think more highly of yourself than you ought because you too could fall into the same sin. So there's this kind of sobriety and humility that we should all have about this single point, that it's possible for any one of us to sin away our influence. Scary stuff. I mean, it's what we read about in the Daily Bible reading yesterday. If you saw that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you remember that Paul tells Timothy, this young pastor, make sure that you present yourself to God as an honorable vessel as opposed to a dishonorable vessel. Right? You've heard Pastor Mike say it's the difference between the porcelain vase and the porcelain throne. Right? Both are porcelain. One is for honorable use. One is for dishonorable use. Right? If you ever thought about that, there you go. There's your image. Um, he's not here, so he's in Tustin. He would have wanted me to say that. Right? The porcelain throne versus the porcelain vase. That's 2 Timothy 2. Right? The idea is you can be used in an honorable way or dishonorable way in God's program. And Paul tells Timothy here, I'll read it for you. He says, now in a great house. There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, 
set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And you could say, hey, that's just an image. You're reading your own reading into that. Well, read the next verse. This is 2 Timothy 2, 22. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So I think we're talking about sanctification there. I think we are talking about freedom and running away from sin. And that's what God calls us to. And you know this, right? Because you know it's possible for a husband to sin away his good and godly influence with his wife, right? This happens, whether it's in your marriage or another marriage, you know that it's possible for a guy to mess up in such a way that his wife doesn't want to listen to him anymore and doesn't want to respect him because he is a hypocrite and he doesn't follow God. You know that's possible. Same thing goes both ways. You know it's possible for you wives to sin away your influence, to make it really hard for you to make a good impact on your husband or your kids because you are engaging in the sins that you're telling other people not to. We all know that it's possible for us to sin away our influence. This is why we gotta be so careful. We gotta be guarded with all this. You ladies are studying the book of James and women's Bible study. James 1 gives this same truth very, very clearly. James 1, 26 James says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It's like they could do good things and their mouth could mess it up for them. That's possible. He says in the next verse, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the kind of service, the kind of impact that God wants us to make is this. First of all, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. What does that mean? That means that you Love the people in your life, in your world, that need love. That you're going to go over the top to show them love. And secondly, to keep oneself unstained from the world. There we are again, right? Back to this purity idea. We need to be righteous. And this is hard for us because you you know, it's hard for you to stand up and be a preserving impact with other people if you know, even our own self-consciousness catches this, right? It's like, well, if I, just, if I just said that, if I just did that thing, I can't call it out for them, right? You see it most graphically uh, illustrated in the Bible in the book of 2 Samuel where David commits a heinous sin and then his kids keep committing sins and he doesn't stop them because he lost the moral authority to stop them and he didn't call it out because it would be hypocritical. He sinned away some of his influence, right? You know, it's possible for us to do the same. We want to stay useful to God. And I just want to encourage you with this passage, being salt and light in the world, salt in particular, being a preserving agent, you know, Christians have done a really good job at this. This isn't something that Christians have been complete failures at, right? This is something that Christians, as they go into culture and they go into society, they do make a genuinely good impact, right? If you remember back from your ancient studies, you might remember that the Roman Empire had all these gladiator fights, And, you know, it was the biggest sport ever for them. And all of a sudden, these Christians come on the scene. There's all these Christians like, this is wrong. These people, it's like state-sanctioned murder of people for sport. This is wrong. This needs to stop. And who stops it? Christians stop it. We go on the mission field. We go to places where there's human sacrifice, especially child sacrifice. It seems like in all these pagan nations, child sacrifice seems to be one of the tenets of uh, of their culture, even a tenant of our sinful culture, right? And what happens? Christians come along and they say, nope, can't do that. 
Christians come along to places like India, and all of a sudden, the culture of burning widows stops because Christians say, we're not going to do this anymore. You go even to think about British history. The people who said this African slave trade needs to stop. This is unjust. This is wrong. You know the people that did it. They weren't atheists who said, let's stop doing it. They were Christians, people like Wilberforce. Christians have been salt in the earth before. And one of the reasons our culture is as good as it has ever been is because Christians have been salt in the earth. And I want you to hear this message and what Jesus is saying to remind us, we need to be salt in the earth again. We have to be that. We have to be preserving. We have to be purifying. But also remember, it's possible. Because that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 13. It's possible for us to send away that influence. Once you think about your world real quick, who are the people that you need to be salt and light to? Just think of a couple people, maybe three or four people in your world, people in your family, people in your workplace. When I say, yeah, there's a coworker that you might have that needs to be brought to Christ, you immediately think of that face or that name. Who are the people in your world? I'd love for you to think those people through, write them down because we're gonna use that as we move through this passage because salt says we wanna preserve sin. We wanna make it harder for sin to take place. We want people to be, you know, this is kind of a weird phrase, but we want them to be uncomfortable doing those sinful things that they may have been comfortable doing when you weren't around. I experience this all the time with the high school students. You know, you can imagine, pastor walks around the room at youth group, I come up to a table of people, what's going on? What are you guys doing? What's all, what are you doing on your phones? What's going on? And all of a sudden, it's like dead silent. It's like, oh, really? That sounds really interesting and exciting. I, I, I'm, I'm very used to it with them, right? You know, I, I, go on, I come on really strong, like, what's going on? What are you doing? What are you doing? Right? And if I get the, I'm like, okay, yeah, you don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell me. It's okay. It's okay. But uh, sounds like maybe you shouldn't have been talking about it if you're not going to talk about it with me, right? You know? Not a universal rule, right? But that's a pretty good uh, principle. You know what I mean? I just want you to think, we all have that sometimes. There's places where you go and you're the Christian and all of a sudden people start to get uncomfortable. They don't want to use that language anymore. They don't want to start talking about that stuff anymore because you're there. Sometimes we view that as a purely negative thing. Now, I guess it is negative in the sense that it's withholding, but Jesus does say here that is part of our role is to be preserving. Your presence places, what kind of effect does it have? Think about your world, those couple people. Next, I want you to think, okay, how can I be light to them? Let's understand what that phrase means, light of the world. Well, if I asked you a question on a Bible trivia exam, who is the light of the world? What would be the first answer that you write down? Who? Oh, Jesus, that's right. I thought this passage said you are the definite article, light of the world, right? Oh, Jesus is too, right? Or maybe that's kind of a weird way of putting it. Jesus is absolutely, we are like derivatively, right? He is the light of the world. We are lights in the world. We are the lights of the world. Non-disciples aren't gonna be lights in the world. But yeah, Jesus is. We see that in John 8, 12. It's one of the famous I am statements that Jesus makes in the gospel of John. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there's something about even us following the light that enlightens, if we want to use that word, that enlightens us, that makes us light in the world too. He says that clearly. Even in our gospel that we're studying right here in the book of Matthew, if you're in Matthew 5, just look over to the left really fast to Matthew chapter 4. The phrase light shows up right here. Matthew 4 verse 15, or starting verse 14. He says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. There's our word. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And look what happens next. Next verse. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Matthew says, oh, he's the light that's promised in Isaiah chapter 9. Oh, what's his message? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. For lights in the world, we are doing what Jesus did. And that's something we can find in the rest of scripture that we're called to do what Jesus does. But if in Matthew 5, we are called the light of the world, literally like what, 15, 20, 25 verses after he says that Jesus is the light and he comes preaching repentance, that gives us a clue at what it looks like for us to be light in the world. We can summarize it this way. Point number two, we want to be public and vocal about Christ. If we're going to be light, I think what that looks like is being public and being vocal about Christ. As you're writing that down, here's just more about what the Old Testament promises about Jesus being the light. Listen to this. This is Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. God speaks there. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. It's one of the greatest statements in the Old Testament about prophecy, and what's the center of the prophecy? God says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. What's the thing he's going to tell them? That there's going to be a light that's going to come to the world, that's going to shine. Even further, Isaiah 49, which is quoted in Luke 2, this idea that Jesus is not just going to be a light to Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee and this, this region up there. But Isaiah 49, 6 says, Is it too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So now we're talking about the people of God even acting as a light in the world. Just like Jesus does. So we go from just Jesus being the light of the world to us even prophesying the Old Testament to be a light to the nations. Not even just Israel, but beyond Israel. To be a light to the whole world. It starts with being public and vocal about Christ. I said earlier, what a waste it would be to turn on our lights and to cover them. That's the image Jesus paints with light. What a waste it would be to invest all that in light and then not to have that light shine in the world. Not to have it illuminate any darkness. Not to have it reach to any of the, the, the world. Now, I say that partially because I want to remind you that it would be a waste for a Christian in whom God has invested so much for us not to be light in the world. I want you to remember, what did Jesus do in order 
for you to be light in the world? What did he do to bring you into a right relationship with God? What did he come to this earth and do? What did he suffer? What righteous things did he do? The way that Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1 is that we were bought not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot or blemish. I want you to remember how much was invested in us. What a waste for us not to use that investment and to share with others. Now, being public and vocal, again, carries with it this assumption that Jesus already has. Jesus does not command you to go be with the world. He doesn't even command you to get out into the world, right? He'll do that a little bit later, Matthew 28, but here he doesn't command that. Why does he not command that? It's not because that's not true. It's because that's already assumed in this text. If you're salt of the earth, obviously you're going to be interacting with the earth. If you're light of the world, obviously you're going to be in a dark world. So that's assumed it's not commanded. But sometimes for us, it needs to be heard as a command if we're used to spending all of our time, every day, all of our relationships with people who are Christians and already have this light. Like I said earlier, salt and a salt shaker is great, right? It's going to be useful. It's preserved, it's pure, but it's not being used yet. Light that's around other light, it's good, it's, it's, it's great, but it's not reaching its full capacity. If every relationship we have, every time that we spend with people, every conversation we have is always with people who agree with us, who think the same way about God, it can be good and edifying. There is good in that. But we are missing out on this thing that Jesus calls us to do and be. Light, salt, both of these images. Did you guys see that moon last night? Like it was really bright. I, it, this is the first time it's ever happened. I woke up this morning and the moon was like right out my window and it was so bright that on the ground it was casting a shadow of the blinds on the ground. I've never seen that. It was like waking up. I didn't know what time it was. Is this the sun? It's not the sun. It's the moon out there. It was super bright. And just this cool little picture right outside my window this morning. As bright as I've ever really seen it, at least in my house. So bright, not because it's a bright surface. You know that. The moon in itself shines no light. There's nothing intrinsic about the moon that illuminates anything, correct? It is a reflected light. Some theologians have talked about our nature as lights in the world with that same image. It's not my idea, it's theirs. The idea that we are not lights in ourselves, we are reflected lights. Jesus is the light of the world, and we are to be reflections of his light on the dark world. That's a good way for us to imagine ourselves. It's a good picture as light of the world. What are the ways that we can do that? I think there's two things. It's kind of built into the point already, public and vocal. What does it mean to be public about living for Christ? Well, our text actually gives us a clue about what light means. And I said this to you earlier in verse 16. The idea is that being light, letting your light shine before others will result in people seeing your good works. Seeing your good works. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses a word, righteousness many times. It's a good word. Sometimes we always think in Matthew 6, he says, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. He says that. He says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So these two things are included in what we're supposed to seek first. So righteousness clearly defined is just us doing the right things, right? Not 
defined on our feelings or emotions or the culture, but right defined by God. That's what righteousness means. So for us to be public about Christ, the first task that we have is we need to be doing righteous things in full view of the world. Not hidden from the world, but in full view of the world. Publicly living for Christ. I want to turn to you a passage that's going to maybe explain this even better than I could right there. Ephesians chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, turn to Ephesians 5. Check this out. Verse 8. Paul is going to talk about what it looks like. He uses this light image to say, this is what it looks like to live as a disciple in a very non-Christian world. They're in Ephesus, where he's going to have to call out all these different problems and, and sins of that culture. We see it you know, most graphically in the book of 1 Corinthians, but here in Ephesians too. Very clearly, we need to stay away from some sins here. And what he says in verse 8, this is Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, for at one time, you were darkness. You didn't have the light of Christ. You were living in sin. You were living in darkness. Ignorance, darkness, sin, darkness, corruption, darkness. You were living in that at one point. But now, you are light in the Lord. Same idea as Matthew 5. You're shining this light in the Lord. So, walk as children of light. One of Paul's favorite phrases just means live. Live in the light. Live in the honesty of truth. Live in the purity of righteousness. Live, live in the sincerity of a good conscience. For the fruit of light, verse 9, is found in all that is good and right and true. So, if we want to start defining what does it mean to be public about Christ, the start is before we ever even open our mouths about Christ, is that we're doing things that are good and right and true. Not defined by our feelings, our emotions, but defined by God's word. What's good and right and true? Well, let's do that. How do I stand out as a light in my office? How do I stand out as a light in the group of moms that hang out at the park? Well, well I start simply by doing what's good and right and true. I start by speaking the truth all the time. I start by having the right heartfelt motives to love other people. I do what's good. I, I raise my kids the way that the, the Bible says I should. Like, th those are all the, the simple, everyday little decisions that we make that end up changing the world. He says in verse 10, and if you don't know, try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Right? In the hard times when you don't know what to do, okay, let's work hard to, to understand what would God want me to do. Right? Well, God wrote a book. It's, it's pretty long. It takes us a year to read most times. So that's a good place to start for what we want to, you know, if we're going to really do what God wants us to do, that's where we should look first. Verse 11, he says, then take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Notice in this passage, he says, okay, there's an avoidance that takes place, but then even in the avoidance, we're kind of taking it one step further that we're not completely ignorant of everything bad that goes on because then you couldn't do the second part, but instead expose them. Primarily, you expose it by your righteous life, right? by the fact that you're not doing those things. That brings to the front of attention the sin that other people have. But further, there is an element in which we start to become vocal about exposing the sin that's in the world. In other words, hard for you to be salt in the world and never to talk about sin. Hard to be light and never talk about sin or salvation or repentance. Hard to be light if Jesus came along in Matthew 4 and was light and his first message was repent because the kingdom of God's at hand. All these things take us to our second task, right? The first task is by being visibly righteous, right? Be distinct and righteous and all that. And then second task is to speak up 
and be vocal and join Jesus' evangelistic work to be a disciple maker. That's the second way that we are light, is that we actually are engaging in, in the talking part, the vocal part. Jesus tells us to be a part of this in Matthew chapter 28 when he says, go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. He tells us we got to be a part of this. But even before that, in verse 18, I like verse 18 and how it sets us all up because sometimes we feel a little scared and we feel like it's not our place or it's not our right to tell people that they're sinners and that they have a sin problem, right? Just natural for us to not feel comfortable doing that, obviously. God knows that. Jesus knows that. That's why he starts by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I had a professor one time in evangelism class that liked to say, if anybody ever asks you, who gives you the right to tell me that I'm a sinner? Who gives you the right to tell me I need Jesus or to be saved? Who gives you the right to even maybe perhaps condemn my lifestyle? Who gives you the right to do that? Who gives you the right to tell me that I need to change my life? Who gives you the right to do all those things? That's a good question, right? Next time you hear that question, you're like, oh, I got an answer for that, right? Who gives you the right? Well, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. So I guess it's the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. I guess it's the creator of all the ends of the earth. I guess it's the designer of every single person that you're talking to. I guess it's the one who knows down to the heart motives of every single thought of every person that you've talked to. I guess he is the one that gives you the right to speak up and offer life through him, right? He gives us that right. And he doesn't just give us a right. He actually tells us we have to. So a little further, it's more like a if you get invited to something, it's hard to use the word in inviting because sometimes you get wedding invitations and sometimes you get jury summons, right? Both of them are invitations, but, you know, one of them feels a little bit like, oh, I got a call after 5 p.m. on Friday, right? As opposed to, oh, I've got to be at the wedding at 5 p.m. on Friday, right? They just feel a little bit different, right? This is an invitation that is a little bit more like a jury summons because Jesus tells us we got to be a part of this, but there's joy in the process of this as well. Peter puts it in just a really poetic way. First Peter 2, 9, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, that's our role. We're light in the world. And not just light, we're, we're telling people that there's a greater light. We're telling people the reason we're righteous is not because we're good, fancy, holy people. It's because there is a God in heaven who sent his son to live a perfect life in our place. He died on the cross, burying our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Right? That's the message that we preach. That's the message we use in making disciples. Now, here's the problem. We can all say amen. We can all agree to that but I want to bring it back to a very practical level. Why might you not be doing that? Why might I not be the light that I need to be? What keeps me and what keeps you perhaps from being salt and light in the ways that you all want to? Because I hope even thinking about this, you get excited and think, yes, I need to. Yes. What keeps us from that when the rubber meets the road? I think it's one simple thing found in Proverbs 29, 25. There, God's word says, the fear of man lays a snare. 
That is one of the biggest reasons why we're not obedient to this particular call. There can be other reasons we're not obedient to other things that God says, but this one in particular, I think it comes down to this. The fear of man lays the snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, we think that fearing man is what will keep us safe. That's the irony of that verse. We think, well, I shouldn't speak up because I'm safer not saying anything. I'm safer not preserving the world because I'd rather not get involved. We feel safer that way. But it's just so great that the scripture just says it. It's not my words. It's not your words. It's God's words. Listen to it again. The fear of man lays a snare. That's a trap. We could step into it. We could get hurt. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. It's our only safety is trusting God and doing what he says. We have a phrase in the high school ministry that I'm trying to like burn into their, their minds. I want them to think about it when they're 40 years old and they remember being back here, here in Elisa Viejo, when they remember me, whatever my facial hair tends to be at that point in my life. I want them to remember this. We have a phrase that we use a lot for high schoolers. Three words, get over yourself. It's really good. You can use it with your high school student too. Uh, get over yourself. Oh, I, I, I just, I don't know if I can... I don't know if I can tell people that I'm a Christian. Oh, great, solution. Get over yourself. Oh, great, we got it right there. Hey, get over yourself. It works great with the high schoolers. They love it, I'm just kidding. But it is something I do want them to think. Get over yourself. If you think, why don't I do this? This is actually one of the big reasons. If, if we're all honest, it's good for us all to think this to ourselves on occasion. I don't want to obey God today. Well, get, get over yourself. Okay, yeah, I guess I, I, guess I need to. I don't know if I want to speak up. Well, if you get over yourself and know what the task is, then maybe, maybe this is time. Now, I know this takes wisdom, and I know that we saw that in Ephesians 5, 11. Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. So being salt and light doesn't mean every time, anytime you see anything that's wrong, you stop everything you're doing, you stop the car, you pull over, and you, you know, type out that angry Facebook comment. That's not what it's going to look like. Oh, I was salt and light today. I saw something bad, and I just blasted it in the comments, right? not always what we're talking about. We want to be light and salt in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, weighed with everything that scripture says, and knowing that we are wanting to care about the people that we're trying to win. Very, very important for us. Gives us a little bit of the balance that we need here. It starts with getting over ourselves. And, you know, you get over yourself, what is there left? If we're no longer selfish, what is going to drive us to do anything? Well, I think there is something that should drive us. I think back in our passage, Jesus actually mentions that which is supposed to drive us. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. I think the motive that we're supposed to have in being salt and light, the thing that's gonna actually help us be successful, the thing that's gonna help us actually do this is found right there. People would see it and they would give glory to your father who's in heaven. That needs to be the motive. That God is going to be praised for my salt and light work. That some people are going to praise God one day because I was salt with them. Because I shine the light with them. Not everybody. Because remember, this verse 16, sometimes Jesus is a little confusing because six verses earlier, what did he say? Oh, you're going to do righteous things? Oh, you'll be persecuted. And sometimes all we hear is that. And I know that's the thing we probably need to hear more, but remember, this is true too. Jesus says, yes, some will persecute, but some will see your righteous deeds and then glorify God for what you did. Like, that's huge. That needs to be a motivation for us. Point number three, we want to be driven 
by the celebration of your father. I want you to be driven by the celebration of God, your heavenly father. We miss this sometimes in our very practical, pragmatic, 10 steps to do this, eight ways to do that. We miss this. This is the, the one thing. I mean, you see that you see that in Psalm 27, right? One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I would behold his beauty and worship him in his temple. For, for godly people, God's praise becomes their one overarching, all-encompassing desire. The Bible has a word for that. It's zeal, that we're, we're on fire, so to speak, for one thing. And that's God and his glory. I want you to think, when is the last time that you stopped and thought about the implications of having a father in heaven, having God as your father in heaven. Because this text is interesting. We just said, you are salt, right? And then you are light. Interesting. Built into verse 16 is another you are statement, and it's you are God's child. If you're a disciple, that's another definitional, ontological identity, purpose statement. Like, I am God's child. That's another thing that I need to remember. I am supposed to be salt here. I'm supposed to be light here. And oh, by the way, remember, God is my father and he is in heaven. And when you remember all that God is, and then remember what he says about his condescending relationship with us, that's going to change the way that we do this. That's going to really drive us to keep going. The Sermon on the Mount is full of things about God as father. In verse 9, chapter 5, says that peacemakers are going to be called sons of God, sons of the Father. In 545, Jesus says, love your enemies like your Father loves his enemies. In 548, he says, be perfect as your Father is perfect. In 6, 1 to 6, Jesus says, make sure that you remember you need to be rewarded by your Father. He sees your sacrifices. In 6, 9, How does Jesus teach us to pray? Our father in heaven is the first words he says. Remember who we're talking to. God is our father. Right after that, in 6, 14 to 15, what does he say? He says, oh, we want to forgive as our father forgives us. Right after that, he says, oh, when it comes to fasting or sacrifices or things like that, don't do it to be seen by others. Do it to be seen and rewarded by God. He sees, he knows your sacrifices. He'll take care of you. He'll reward you. That's what he gets into later. In 632, in that section about anxiety, remember how Jesus speaks about God. He says, remember, your father knows that you need all of these things. God sees and knows, and he'll take care of you. And then in 711, near the end of the sermon, he says, remember, your father in heaven loves to give good gifts. Your father loves to hear your prayers. And he wants to answer. It's all over this sermon and should shape the way we think about our life. We have a father in heaven who loves us and cares for us. And he's not calling us to do something that's torturous. He's not calling us to do something that's impossible. He's not calling us to do something that's not good. He's doing it out of the care and love that he has for us. Now, there's a problem built into this text that some of you already thought of. And you said, I don't know about that whole public thing. I don't know about that whole righteous things publicly because I'm reading this and it says, okay, that they may see your good works. But I'm also, you just mentioned chapter six, verse one. Can everyone look at six, one? Look what Jesus says. He says, beware 
of practicing your righteousness before others. Ah, see, I knew that verse was in there somewhere. That's why I don't do it. That's why I I keep all my prayer and all my things that I do for God. I keep it all private because remember, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Look what he says next. In order to be seen by them. That's the purpose clause where the purpose clause in 516 is that they would give glory to your father who's in heaven. So you can do the same good things. And in 6.1, Jesus says, wrong, bad, hypocrisy. And in 5.16, he says, good, pleasing. So, so this is where it's like, well, what's the difference between those two things? You just said that you could do the same things. Yes, you could do the same things. Jesus warns that we could become hypocritical if what we're doing is we're good because we want people to praise us. Don't miss that in 5.16. Because he's not just saying, oh, be a really public, righteous person. Because, oh, if you want to be public and righteous about your prayers and you extend your prayers and try to be long and eloquent when you're at your small group so that you can pray so everyone thinks you're godly, well, remember what he says. It's like, oh, the people who pray these long prayers to be seen by others, they have their reward. Their reward was in what they did, that people saw them. Oh, they gave and they told everyone what they gave. They blew trumpets when they gave their money to the synagogue. Well, they've received their reward. They fast and they say, oh, I'm fasting today. Oh, don't offer me food. I'm fasting. And they make their clothes all raggedy and they don't shave and, you know, whatever they do with fasting. Oh, I'm fasting. You know, oh, you do that to be seen by other people for your glory so that they honor you, so that they praise you. Jesus is like, that's wrong. So we got to be super careful. This This keeps us kind of on the knife's edge here. We're doing righteous things publicly, but remember our motive has to be for God, driven by God, for him. You see this really well illustrated in all the righteous people who live. I mean, when David prays, when Elijah prays, when Abraham prays, when Moses prays, when Ezra and Nehemiah pray, when Daniel prays, you know what they all pray when they ask God for things? They say, God, please do this thing for me. They don't say for me. They say, do this thing for you. When Elijah prays, when he's against all the prophets of Baal, and he says, oh, God, please have fire come down from heaven. Why does he pray it? Does he say, God, get me out of this pickle, man. I really put myself in one this time. There's 400 prophets. Just get me out of this situation. That's not what he prays. He says, God, show everyone here that you are the Lord and turn their hearts back. He prays for God in his glory. When Daniel prays for the exiles to come back, what does he pray? He says, oh, God, it's been a long time. Oh, it's been a long time. Just get us back to that land. We need to be back in that land. He doesn't pray that. He confesses the people's sin and say, we have been unrighteous. We have broken the covenant, but God, for your name and for your reputation and for your steadfast love, do something about it for your glory. And what happens while Daniel's praying? Angel Gabriel shows up and says, yeah, I'm gonna do that when his people prayed. Now, what does that illustrate for us? It illustrates that Righteous and godly people are consumed with this one thing, the celebration of their father. That that's why we do what we do. And if it becomes about us, it's gonna be a big problem. Did you you see the big viral thing that happened a couple weeks ago where all these women were asking their husbands how often they thought about the Roman Empire? Did you see this? Okay, well, look it up. It's very interesting. All these ladies would start to video their husbands or video their dads sometimes. And said, hey, dad, hey, husband, when's the last time you thought about the Roman Empire? 
And these women were always expecting their husbands like, oh, I don't know, I'd never really. When's the last time? Seventh grade history class? What do you, I don't know. But these guys, almost all of them are like, oh yeah, I think about it all the time. Or even men, do you think about, do you ever think about the Roman Empire? No? Okay, well. <laughs> a lot of other people did. <laughs> they all did, right? Uh, this is a viral hit. I want you to think about the Roman Empire. I want one more thought to flood your mind. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll end here tonight, or tonight, this morning. We have not made it all the way to the night. That's good news. It's only the 9 o'clock service. You got lunch after this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I want you to see this very, very Roman image of what it looks like to be salt and light. The kind of effect that it's going to have on the world. We'll close here. Paul says, came to Troas to preach the gospel. There was a door open for me. I wasn't at rest, but, verse 14, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. It's this Roman image of you got the conquering king or conquering general who behind him has all of his subjects, all the people who fought with him, carrying along all the spoils of war. It's a big parade, right? We're not good with parades. Uh, The Rose Parade is not very, you know, it's a big deal, but it's not like this. Um, Thanksgiving Day parade's kind of lame. If you go to like a World Cup parade in some foreign country when they win, like that's the kind of parade we're talking about here. Like not like a WNBA parade, right? We're talking about a serious, lots of people, everybody's seeing it. It's not just on the news, like you're there kind of parade. That's what would happen here in the ancient world. And what happened was as they went, they'd be burning these aromas. They'd be burning this flesh. They would have, you know, the barbecue, so to speak, would be going through and everyone would see it, smell it, and know that something was going on. Paul says, thanks be to God who through Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So to both groups of people, we're like spreading this fragrance or this aroma of God. And to one, it's a fragrance from death to death. They see it, they hate it. They're gonna be the people that will persecute. But to the other, a fragrance from life to life. If you're salt and light, you're gonna be noticed, you're gonna be seen, and some people will react in positive, some will be negative. A good question at the end. He says, who is sufficient for these things? We can't do this on our own. Not sufficient for this. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. We're not here trying to you know, steal money or something, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That's why we do what we do. Because Jesus told us to, we're commissioned by God, and we do it for his celebration. Hopefully that image can stay in your mind this week as you try to be salt and light in the world in which God has put you. Let's pray that God would help us do that. God, we are humbled by the reality here that we face of what it means to be a disciple. We ask the same question that Paul asked, who is sufficient for these things? We know that on our own, we can't do this. We ask you to help us through your spirit to empower us this week, to have the knowledge and the insight and the words to be light. Pray that we would have the, the, the quiet, secret, devotional life that it's gonna take to be the salt that we need to be in the world. And all these things, We pray that you'd be praised and honored. That's why we do everything we do. Pray that you would continue to conform our hearts to your will this morning through this message. Jesus, amen.